team for singing that song. Um, so a standing joke is I send song suggestions to the worship leaders, and they keep rejecting me. And uh, for whatever reason, I don't, one will say, I don't like it, I can't sing it, it's a terrible song. And uh, so I keep, I'm, I'm persistent, so I keep sending them stuff, and they keep shooting me down. And so Bill said, I'll do this one. And uh, so I was like, oh, I like it. Yeah. So thank you. It was great. I loved it. I can go to glory now because Bill played one of, my, one of the songs. Hopefully not right now. But uh, anyway, I really do appreciate it. They had, to, they had to do extra practices to get that song, and I think they did a great job. Well, good morning, everybody. It's good to be here. It's been a while since I've been up here. But if you're visiting, I know we've got some new people you're visiting or uh, maybe you haven't been here in a while. My name is Larry Stewart. I'm one of the elders here. I'm on staff. And uh, Mike, who is our regular, Mike Halpin, who's our regular teaching elder, he is visiting family in soggy Southern California, I think. Is it still raining? It's, uh, I don't know if they're where all the rains are and uh, floods and all that. But they're visiting family for... I think another week is another week, and they'll be back next week. So, so if you don't like listening to me, come back and hear Mike. And uh, I only preach, I don't know, three or four times a year, so you can put up with that. So have you ever experienced a significant life event, something that is out of the ordinary, and it causes you to refocus on what's really important in life? Often that occurs when we have a health scare, Either you or somebody close to you gets a diagnosis of a serious illness. Maybe it's a life-threatening illness. In fact, we got a call on Friday from a neighbor of ours who had just gotten diagnosed with leukemia and was on her way to KU Med uh, to get radiation and, and treatment. And so in the space of one phone call, you know, you're going about your life, and one phone call, life changes. Uh, it doesn't always have to be a health issue, though that's frequently what happens. It could be the loss of a job. You know, this church has been very blessed during this pandemic time, as far as I know. We've had some work slowdowns, but uh, nobody's lost their jobs that I know of. And that's not the case in a lot of the country. A lot of people have lost their jobs and are, and are not able to make it or afraid that they're going to get evicted from their place. Uh, it could be a loss of a relationship. You know, we live in, we live in polarized times. We're all in in tribes, and so some people uh, have said, well, you just need to cut off somebody that voted the way, a different way than you did. I have lost relationships over that. It could be something like that. Whatever it is, it's something that happens, and the plans you had all of a sudden get derailed, and it forces you to go back to basics because you're trying to make sense of the reality, the new reality that you're in, right? You're trying to, trying to figure out the landscape. Well, I want to suggest that 2020 and the early days of 2021 were just such an event for the country and the church. You know, I don't think we fully reckoned with the results of the pandemic or the changed landscape that we find ourselves in. And for most of 2020, maybe you're different, I always felt like I was in the, the, you know, the dream where you're running and you're not making any progress and something's chasing you, and you're trying to get away, and you're just not going anywhere, right? It was, it was kind of like that the entire year. 
there was crisis after crisis, and before you got used to one crisis, another one had come along and superseded it, and so you really weren't sure what to react to. It was a time of contention and friction. Uh, everybody was just kind of angry. It was a, the whole country was, seemed like it was on a low boil the entire year. It was a year that exposed a lot of rot in almost every institution, at almost every level of government, education establishments, corporate media, corporations. It, it was a year where the foundations were just really shaken. And you, I think we saw it in a way that we probably hadn't before. And all that was before the election. That was, that was 2020 before the election. Okay, so after the election, things just seem to move at a speed that, uh, in, an, in, in a direction, excuse me, that was not entirely unpredictable, but it was a little scary with the speed at which it occurred, okay? You saw consolidations, uh, the tech companies moving, not in concert, because that would have been bad, but we just saw some things that you wouldn't have expected. So what I want to talk about is I want to talk about getting back to basics, Eventually, we're going we're to get there. But the first point on your study sheet is that it's the end of America as we know it, and I feel fine, which if you're an 80s rock fan is a ripoff of R.E.M.'s song. It's the end of the world as we know it, and I feel fine. Um, now, maybe you think that's hyperbole or you think I'm being a drama queen. Um, I don't think so, okay? The dominant political, educational, corporate, technical institutions are now controlled by people who are at best apathetic and at worst antagonistic to the conservative flavor of Christianity that most of the people in this room aspire to. Okay, and we're going to talk about that's not, a, that's not a reason to fear. This is not fear-mongering. I don't want us to be scared. We're going to talk about But I want us to be realistic. You know, Kent, when he taught last month, said, let's be realistic about the world that we're in. So that's what I'm trying to do. Let's be realistic about the world we find ourselves in. Uh, you know this, the forces that are in control now, they're emboldened. Uh, I think we're gonna see more overt restrictions. Uh, they're trying to impose a certain dogma and restrict other views from imposing on that dogma or contradicting that dogma. No, sorry. Nope, you're good. Um, <laughs> so I don't, think it's, I don't think it's hyperbole or fear-mongering to say that the church is in our uncharted waters, I guess is what I'm trying to say. Right? I'm going around my elbow to get to my thumb, as my grandmother would say. Um, I think... <laughs> so can, can I... You know, we keep it real here, right? Can I just tell you guys, I struggled with this. This was a brutal... Uh, so I'm... Mike makes it look so easy, and I'm so jealous and envious of him, right? But I, when I teach, I don't do anything else that week. I don't meet with people. I don't have anything else. This is what I do. You guys may say, really? It's pretty <laughs> pathetic. Uh, but I just really struggled with this. And, and Thursday, my wife says, you know, what's wrong with you? What's going on? And uh, I said, I'm just really struggling with this. I don't know why. And, but God is so merciful, guys. Listen, I was sitting out here on our brand new couches, which are fabulous. 
And I was just like, is this really what you want me to say? Should I do something else? Should I misread or whatever? I just am not feeling it. I told Mark I was going to fake a heart attack and have somebody else teach. Uh, and then God is so good, you guys, because I remembered the song that we had played, that the band at Mosaic had played, um, The Goodness of Jesus, okay? And I hope we sing it sometime. Um, but it just talks about how God loves you. God is for you, and you can rest in the goodness of Jesus. Okay, so I'm out there on the couch like a moron. I'm crying, and I'm just, but I feel this peace, okay, because God is good. And all that has nothing to do with my sermon. So I apologize. So we'll get back to it. Just wanted to keep it real here. Some of you are visiting and you're not going to come back. But <laughs> please do. Please come back because we want you to be here. So, okay. So I think we're going to see, again, going back to the landscape, I think we're going to see some overt hostility. I think we're going to see some things. I think we're a long way off from actual physical violence. But listen, you know, our view of persecution is skewed because we've had it so good for so long. But listen, guys, since the stoning of Stephen, the church has thrived in hostile environments. The church grows. Remember the old saying in Fox's Books of Martyrs, the, what is it? The blood of the martyrs is the foundation of the church. It's always been this way. So in a sense, we are returning to the status quo. And the scripture has a lot to say about persecution. I'm, this my sermon is not about fear-mongering or anything like that. You know, in Matthew 5, Jesus said that blessed are you when they persecute you and revile you and say all kinds of bad things about you because they did it to the prophets themselves before you and they did it to our Savior. And if they did it to our Savior, if we're looking like him, which is what I really want to talk about today, if we're emulating our Savior, it should be expected that we're going to be persecuted for it. Paul tells Timothy in 2 Timothy 3, he says, everybody that wants to live a godly life is going to be persecuted. Everybody. That's a promise, actually, in the Bible. All right? It's not the promise of Jeremiah 29.11 that I have a wonderful plan for you. It's not the one we put on coffee cups, but that's a promise. That's a promise in the Bible. And so we need to get our minds around that, okay? Because we find ourselves in a difficult and different landscape. But there's no reason to fear. There's no, and, and I'm not a masochist, right? I'm not, I'm not like, yeah, bring on the persecution. I'm, I'm ready for it. Uh, that's not what I'm saying. But if and when persecution comes, there's no reason to fear it. But we need to be realistic about the world that we're in, okay? So the second part of that statement is that I feel fine. And that's a true statement. I do feel fine. I do feel fine about the direction that America is going in. But that was a hard-won feeling, okay? I, didn't, I don't want you to think I'm being callous or I'm being flippant or I'm being glib. That was a hard-won I feel fine. Many of you may know, if you're new here, you won't. <clears throat> that my family and I spent 27 years in the Air Force. I'm third generation military. And so uh, we sacrificed a lot. We gained a lot by military service. I don't want to say that we didn't. We had a great life. We got to travel to a bunch of fantastic places, meet people that we're still in contact with. It was a good life. I'm not saying it wasn't. But we sacrificed for that as well. 
And so some of what's going on, if I'm honest, has felt personal to me. I look at what's happening and it's felt like a betrayal, like it's happening to me. And I'm sure you guys feel that to an extent too, but um, you know, when I've worn the uniform of a country and I left my wife, not left my wife, I left my wife to go and be deployed several times. Uh, You know, that stings a little bit and it's hard and it feels personal, but I'm okay with it. And I'm okay with it for some of the reasons that I've just mentioned that I think, I think this is gonna be a great time for the church because I think that God is gonna use this time to strip away all the things that really don't matter. God is gonna force us to depend on him more, which is a great thing. And honestly, I honestly, truly, truly believe this. I think God is gonna do something in and through the church in these coming years that is just gonna blow your socks away, all right? And I wanna be in on that, all right? You look and you look in the book of Acts and there's people getting saved all over the place. There's miracles being performed, all that stuff, right? You look in the, the rest of the global church and, you, and you, churches in China or Nigeria that are facing persecution and people are coming to faith and you look at all that and you're like, I want part of that. And if the cost of it is persecution, well, then I think that's a, that's a prayer bargain, okay? And again, I'm, I'm not... I'm not a masochist, I don't, yeah, persecution, but I think that this is an opportunity for us to strip down our American Christianity and get back to what's the basics, which is really what I want to spend my time talking about, okay? But I think God's going to do something great in the church, and I want to be on board with that, and I hope you do too. Um, So what I really want to talk about today is I really want to talk about discipleship, Because I think, you know, it's on your study sheet that's called Christianity 101. Probably actually should have been called Christianity 201 because you have to be saved before you can be a disciple. So getting saved is Christianity 101. This is Christianity 201. And we aren't going to cover any new ground today, guys. So if you've been a Christian more than 10 minutes, uh, what I say should be familiar to you. But again, I think it's helpful to go back to basics. I think it's helpful especially during these times where things are confusing, to go back to the things that we know for sure and that we can build, build on those things. And so that's what I want to talk about. So we're going to go, the main text today is going to be Matthew 28, 18 through 20. It's often referred to as the Great Commission, if that's a new term to you. The reason why it's called the Great Commission is because these are some of the last words that Jesus spoke to the 11 remaining apostles before his ascension. So this occurs before Pentecost, which is when the Holy Spirit came on the apostles and uh, turned them into, gave them superhuman courage, and then you see thousands getting saved, and they're healing people, and all the miracles that are happening in the, the early church. At this point, all they know is what the women have told them. Jesus is alive, and he's given instructions for you guys to go to Galilee and to meet him there, and he's going he's gonna to give you some further instructions. So off they go. They go to Galilee, and sure enough, there's Jesus. And this is what he says to them. 
And he says, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe everything I have commanded you. And remember, I am with you always to the end of the age. And, of course, the rest of the story is that they did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went out and they made disciples. And they made disciples, and then those people made disciples, and pretty soon a lot of the Roman world had come to faith in Christ. So the first thing I want us to look at in these verses is that all authority in heaven and earth has been given to Jesus. There is no authority in heaven or in earth that Jesus doesn't control, that he doesn't have. And so as I mentioned earlier, you know, the speed which with, the, with which the tech companies kind of consolidated power in which they control what you hear and what you say, what you can talk about. You know, that's frightening to some people, okay? But to us, it shouldn't be because every authority is a derivative authority. And what I mean by that is every authority is under the authority of Jesus. So there is no authority Excuse me, I've lost my place. Oh, so there's no authority that is not under his control. Now, a good example of this is Pilate. There's several examples, but this is probably one that illustrates it. So Pilate in trying to free Jesus. So if you remember, Pilate is, Jesus is before Pilate. The Sanhedrin is there, and they're, they're over here yakking and, and accusing him. And, and Pilate says, don't you have anything to say about what they're telling you? what they're accusing you of, and, and Jesus doesn't answer him. And then Pilate says, don't you know that I have authority over you? I have authority to free you, and I have authority to kill you. And what does Jesus say? He says, you wouldn't have any authority if it hadn't been given to you. You know, Paul says that the cross of Christ was the foreknowledge and the foreplan of God. And so Pilate was exactly where God meant for him to be at exactly the moment so that he could pronounce sentence on Christ so that God's plan could be fulfilled. Okay, God picked Pilate out and said, you're going to be here at this point in history to do this because it's my plan, not yours. You think it's your plan, but it's really not. And guys, the same principle applies to us. No matter what, tech companies or governments or anybody else does, there is no authority that is exercised over us that has not been either allowed by Christ or, and is for his purposes. It's for our good and for the glory of God, everything that happens, because nothing happens apart from God willing it to. So there's no reason to fear any of this. All right, and then Jesus says, make disciples of all nations. Well, there's an implication in that command. And, and the implication is that you are a disciple. You have to be something before you can make somebody else something. And so what's the definition of disciple? Well, there's, you know, the Webster's definition is someone, adheres to the te someone who adheres to the teachings of another. They are a follower and a learner. Someone who copies the ways of someone else. 
So for the Christian, you could say someone who, because of the new life that God has put into them, they can form their life after the pattern of Jesus. They do the things that Jesus does. They love the things that Jesus loved. They follow as much as they can after Jesus and pattern their life after him. So we want to look at some diagnostic questions that are on your study sheet. We're going to go through those. And as we do, it's important to note that we don't do things perfectly, right? Perfection is, is the goal, but we're never, we never get there. Sanctification is a process. We're all in different parts. So if there's some area where you're thinking, I don't do as well, then don't condemn yourself. That's not what any of this is about. Uh, even the Apostle Paul said I, in Philippians, he said, I haven't gotten there yet. I don't consider myself as having reached it yet. So we're in good company, right? If Paul can say that, then we're okay saying it as well. But there's things that should be evident in some manner in our lives. Ideally, we should be growing in them, but we should be able to see these things in our lives. And the first is, do I love Jesus? Is he first in my life? And that's not a gotcha question. Right? It's not meant to condemn. It's not make, meant to make you look at your navel and say, well, you know, I just don't know. Um, when I ask that question, it's meant for us to honestly evaluate where does Jesus fit in the hierarchy of our affections? Matthew 22, 36 through 38. Some Pharisees were trying to trap Jesus into saying something that they could use to condemn him. Um, and so they asked him, and they said, you know, the 600 or so commands in the Mosaic Law, which is the most important? And so they're hoping he's going to say something that they could use against him. And Jesus quotes Deuteronomy 6. He says, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. So the greatest commandment and the first mark of a disciple is to have an all-encompassing love for Christ. To love him with our will, our emotions, and our intellect. So it means that the entire orientation of your life is towards Christ, right? Your first affections are towards Christ. You're, you're thinking about him. You have a love for him. You have an affection for him. You love the person of Jesus, not just the things that Jesus does for us. You love him as a person. And maybe you think, well, you know, I don't feel that all the time, or maybe it's not as, as warm as it should be. We all have those times, right? But listen, if you are a believer, you have the Spirit of Christ in you. You have the Holy Spirit living in you. And so if you find those times where you're dry and you're just not feeling your affection for Christ, pray. Ask the Spirit to kindle those affections in you. Ask him, as you're reading your Bibles, which I know you are all doing regularly, ask him to help you fall in love with the Jesus in those pages. Right? And, you know, Steve is talking about the Old Testament prophets, and, and the entire Bible points to Jesus, not the Gospels, not just the epistles. Everything is about him. So no matter where you are in the scriptures, it's all about Jesus. Ask the Holy Spirit to open your eyes, kindle your affections. You know, meditate on the goodness and the glory of Christ. We sing sometimes that he's altogether lovely, altogether worthy, and that is absolutely true. 
He is altogether worthy. He's altogether lovely. Meditate on those things. One of the best ways that we think, um, I think, for you to kindle a love for Jesus is to be around people that love Jesus. So it's one of the reasons why we want this church to be open. If you're physically able, we want you to be here. And we want to have conversations, not just about how you're doing, but we should want to have conversations about what are you learning? How are you growing? What is Jesus teaching you? How can I love you? How can I support you? Next is, am I bearing fruit? So anytime Christians talk about fruit, it can be confusing because there's a dual component to bearing fruit. So there's what God does in us to cause us to bear fruit. But scripture also teaches that we have a responsibility to do things in order that we would bear fruit. And sometimes those ideas can seem like they're intention. They can seem like they're mutually exclusive. They seem that way to us, but the scripture teaches them clearly. So if you read passages like Colossians 1.29, Galatians 5.22, talks about the fruit of the Spirit. Those are all things that God does in us to cause us to bear fruit. But then you get to a passage like Colossians 3, and Paul is telling the Colossian church that because they belonged to Christ, they had all these earthly things, so sexual immorality, impurity, lust, evil desire, greed. And he says, put those things off, put them away. Malice, wrath, anger, envy, dissensions, all those things. Put, put those things off. And instead, put on things that belong to your new nature. Humility, love, those kinds of things, right? So the, the implication is that we have to do something to, to take those things off and to put other things on. Paul says to work out your salvation with fear and trembling. Peter says to make every effort to put on these godly qualities. He says be diligent, make every effort, work hard at putting those on. So it's, so it's absolutely true that unless God causes you to grow, you're not going to grow. But it's also absolutely true that we have a responsibility to work hard at those things that we need to grow on. The other reason it can be confusing is because the scripture uses fruit in a couple of different ways. So fruit can mean people coming to faith in the gospel. Paul uses that in the epistles, uh, especially to the Romans. He said, I wanted to come and see you so that I could gather some fruit among you. So it absolutely means that. The more common meaning is it means that you're growing to be more like Jesus. It means that your character is being shaped by proximity to the Savior. It means that you're growing in your graces. You're growing in those things that make you more like the Savior. And so it can be helpful if you're in a small group or you have somebody that you're accountable to is to ask them every once in a while, how am I doing? Uh, if you have kids, ask your kids because that will be a sure answer. What does this look like in my life? Can you see changes? Can you see me growing in grace? Can you see me growing and more Christ-likeness. You know, open your Bibles. Look at Galatians 5.22 and just, just start going through. Do I have more love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, self-control? How many of you were singing the song with me? Yeah. I always forget faithfulness for some reason. I don't know why. But just go through that. How am I doing? Evaluate yourself. And again, guys, if you find out you know, I just don't have a lot of joy or I don't have a lot of 
Don't beat yourself up. Don't say, oh, I'm such a horrible Christian. You know, because then the focus is on you, right? Oh, I'm such a bad person. I'm, I'm so terrible. No, you know, get on your knees, repent. Ask the spirit that lives in you to produce more fruit. He wants to do that for you. God means for us to bear fruit. Jesus said in John 15, you know, if we abide in him, we will produce much fruit. So that's an expectation. So if you're not doing that, ask God to help you do that. Another mark of discipleship is a a growing love for fellow believers. Now, this can be challenging in the best of times because we all have residual sin patterns. And sometimes we rub against each other. Uh, We joke in this church that we have a lot of independent-minded people uh, who are not not shy about sharing opinions. And some of those opinions are pretty strong. So it can be challenging sometimes for us to love one another. Uh, It's challenging because of the cultural climate we find ourselves in, right? So we're, we're tribal and we're, we seem to have this um, thing that has creeped into the church. Well, that if you disagree with me, it's not just a disagreement, but you're a bad person. Yeah. Thankfully, we don't have a lot of that here, but you see that in the church. But the Bible has a lot to say about that, and it is one of the marks of disciples. So Jesus himself said, that they will know you're my disciples by your love for one another. It's how the outside world sees that we belong to Christ if we love one another. And that kind of love is not just affection or uh, that I like hanging out with you. You're a fun person to, to go do something with. It's part of that. But it's sacrificial love. It's love that puts your needs ahead of mine. It's love that costs me something. That's the kind of love that the Bible is talking about. Now, you guys are probably all familiar with 1 Corinthians 13, sometimes called the love chapter. It's read a lot at weddings. Um, Not to burst any bubbles, but in context, it's actually Paul's response to a fight going on in the Corinthian church. Uh, So hopefully I haven't killed anybody's romantic dreams with that, but... Uh, That's what's going on. So these guys are arguing about who has the greater gifts. These guys are arguing about all kinds of other stuff. And Paul says, love is the better way. And in the midst of that, he lists off this kind of love. He says, love, uh, where is it? Love is patient. Love is kind. Love does not envy, is not boastful, is not arrogant, is not rude, is not self-seeking, is not irritable and does not keep a record of wrong, wrongs. Love finds no joy in unrighteousness, but rejoices in the truth. It bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So again, it can be helpful to just go, kind of go through this list as you look at your interactions with people. Am I kind? When I talk to people, am I kind? Am I patient? Am I self-seeking or do I... Do I seek to serve myself? Am I irritable? That one was an ouch for me. Uh, Do I hold grudges or am I quick to forgive and move on? And guys, again, you know, the cultural climate that we find ourselves in, we're going to need to develop more of this kind of love because 
We're going to need each other more. We're going to have to depend on each other more. And so it's helpful to sometimes ask, how am I doing? Use it as a benchmark. You may not always like the answer, but again, it could be a helpful diagnostic. You know, a related mark of loving uh, fellow believers is, do I love my enemies? And often that can be harder than loving fellow believers. But I said earlier that part of being a disciple is that we want to emulate Jesus and we want to be like Jesus. And Jesus loved his enemies. He didn't revile when they were beating him. When they were nailing him to the cross, what did he say? Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. You know, in Mike's Deuteronomy series, he said, God brings his reign on the just and the unjust. How are we doing at loving our enemies? Because that's a mark of discipleship too. Jesus said it in Matthew 5. Love your enemies. Pray for those who persecute you so that you will be sons of your father. That's a tough sell in our current climate. But it's something we should have. Listen, we shouldn't have animosity to people that oppose us. If anything, we should have pity. Right? Because if you get to the end of the Bible and you read the book of Revelation, the great white throne judgment, you know, Napoleon's going to be there. Caesar's going to be there. Jeff Bezos is going to be there. All those guys are going to be there. And if they haven't repented and if their name is not in the book of life, they're going to hear from the one on the great white throne, depart from me into eternal punishment. This is going to be a horrible, horrible day if your name is not in the book of life. And so there's no need to hate people. If anything, we should pity, right? Spurgeon has a great quote, one of my absolute heroes of the faith. Spurgeon and I are going to, well, I shouldn't say what we're going to do. Anyway, I'm going to hang out with Spurgeon. <laughs> I'll say it. We're going to have a whiskey and a cigar because that's what his thing. And we're going we're gonna to talk for a thousand years, me and Spurgeon. We're going to hang out. Okay, but Spurgeon had a great quote. He said, if people are determined to go to hell, let them do it over our bodies. Let them do it with our arms wrapped around their knees. Okay, there's no reason to hate people that are opposed to Christ. Right? Pity those people. Because they've turned down the free gift of salvation and the fate that awaits them is horrible. So there's no reason to, there's no reason to hate. I wish I could show you guys your faces because you're just like <laughs> one of these days I'm gonna get a GoPro and I'm gonna I'm gonna do it. Okay, and the last mark is am I investing in others? Right? If I'm a disciple, am I making disciples? Am I investing in others? Everybody in this room can do something to invest in somebody else, right? We have primary Sunday school. All of you are welcome to volunteer. Jamie would be thrilled to have everybody. You can work in the nursery, okay? You're discipling. You're coming alongside parents, and you're discipling kids. All of us can do something. You know, one of the things the Bible talks about is 
when there were offerings, so that you would give an offering to a church that was doing some kind of work, right? And, and Paul says you participate in the gospel through that. You know, find a, find a discipling ministry. Find somebody who's doing some good disciple work. Send them some money. Get on their prayer list. Okay? There's, there's something that we can all do. We don't need to be sitting on the sidelines. We can all do something to invest in other people so that they're being made disciples. So that as we learn, as we grow in Christ, we're pouring that out to other people. So maybe you look at that list and you think, I'm doing okay. You know, a few tweaks and I'd be hitting on all, on all cylinders. Not too bad. You know, maybe you look at that list and you're like, eh, yeah, I don't know. Uh, I'm not feeling too good. Uh, you know, if you're in the first group, praise God. Ask him to keep you on the path. Keep pushing forward. If you're in the second group, praise God. Get on your knees, repent. Ask God to get you back on the path. Ask God to get you where you need to be. But whatever group you're in, part, part of the hard, the hard part about discipleship is maintaining momentum, right? So I can almost guarantee that if you go to the gyms, they're all empty. You don't have any problem getting a treadmill anymore at Koa. There's donuts and, and pop in the fridge again, right? Because we've, we've all made our, we've all busted our resolutions, because we don't follow through on things. So we're eating junk food again. We're back on sugar, all those kinds of things. And so it's the same in discipleship. We need to find things, we need to do things that are going to help us to, to push into that and to keep that momentum going. So one of the things we need to do is we need to get rid of distractions and compete for our time and our affections. You know, one of the good things about the early spring lockdown was that it kind of forced us to slow down. And so again, I'm, you know, I didn't lose my job. I'm very privileged in that respect. But it wasn't all bad. We took a lot of walks. We hung out together. We played games. I had plenty of time to study my Bible and, and read and, and do things because there weren't all these other activities that we were a part of in the initial part of the or the pandemic. And so as things ramp back up and as things open up more and more, the temptation is, right, because we've been, we have all this pent up energy is to rush back into it. I get to do all these things again. I'm going to go do this and this and this and this. And that's a mistake. And we need to, to find things that we can build margin into our schedules, right? Keep some of those habits that you started, hopefully started, Make time for Bible reading. Make time to go out to coffee with somebody. Ask them how they're doing. Make time to invest in other people. Make time to read your Bibles, to pray, to meditate. One of the big distractions for me was social media. So I deleted my Facebook account. Um, so if you had a pending friend request, I'm sorry, I don't have an account anymore. Um, but it was, all it did was raise my blood pressure. And so it had to go. So some of you are better about that. Some of you actually, you know, share the Bible and, and me, I just got angry. So I had to get rid of it, but get rid of other distractions. 
that are pulling you away from your affections, that are pulling you away from Christ, right? Especially as we, things get back to normal, more normal. In order to thrive in these times, press into relationships, right? If you look at the early church, they were all about relational pursuits. So they ate together, they worshiped together, they had all things in common. This is my plug for you to get, in, get into a small group. Get into a group where you can be known, where you know, where people are encouraging you, where they're building into you and you're building into them. All right? Whatever these times bring, we're going to need each other and we're not going to survive without each other. So get, in, get into a group of people where you can be known, where you know somebody's praying for you, where you know somebody's going to call you out when you're straying. Have some accountability in your life. Let's move beyond superficial relationships. Move into relationships where we really want to sacrifice for each other. We really want to show love. And then, I think in these times too, we need to count the cost of discipleship. Okay? So that we can stand firm when times of testing come, whenever those are. When I was stationed at McConnell, which is where I met my beautiful bride many, many years ago, I was part of a squadron, the civil engineering squadron. And one of the sections in that squadron was responsible for readiness training for the entire wing. And what that means for those of you who don't know is they would put on these exercises so we would play war. Right? And the idea being is that you want to know how to fly airplanes and you don't want to know how to shoot your weapon and you want to know how to have defensive positions. You want to know how to put on your protective gear. When you have relative peace and, and the consequences are not you know, getting written up uh, and not somebody dying. So you want to have all that stuff figured out before things happen. And then you're wondering, wait, how do I put on this gas mask? And I don't remember, and I wasn't paying attention, and, and then you're dead. Um, so you want to have all that figured out beforehand. Okay. And again, I don't know if persecution is coming. I don't know. But while it's not, it's the time for us to be prepared for when it is. So while it's not, it's the time to develop these habits. You know, Mike jokes a lot about um, saying about reading your Bible, that it's cliche, right? But guys, get into your Bibles. Because if the time ever comes where you can't have them, you want to be able to have enough of the Bible memorized or that you can remember that you're not standing by yourself. Develop those habits. Develop prayer and meditation. Because let me tell you something. When, when the stuff does actually hit the fan, is not the time for you to start doing things because you won't do it. It's just human nature. When we're under distress, it's not the time to pick up new habits. Anybody will tell you that. So develop those habits now. And lastly, we need to understand that the time is short. Now again, I'm not saying people are going to start breaking down the door next week. I'm not saying that at all. You know, we've talked about eschatology some, 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 the end days. And honestly, every generation of the church has thought that they're in the run-up to the end. Every generation of the church has said, this is it. It's, it's coming soon. 
And we could be the same. All this could pass. The fever could break. We could return to normal. I don't know. Or maybe we are in the run-up to the end. And in the end, it doesn't matter. Because you know what matters is we're a day closer today to Christ's return than we were yesterday. And tomorrow, we're going to be a day closer than we are today. One day, the clock is going to stop ticking, whether it's on our watch or somebody else's. The clock is going to stop ticking, the buzzer's going to sound, and Jesus is going to return. And then it's too late. It's too late to, to warn people. It's too late to continue our growth. You know, one of the, the second scariest passage in the Bible, I think, is uh, 1 Corinthians uh, 3, I think it is. I should know that, right? Because it's scary. Uh, but it talks about the, the Bema judgment seat. It says, you know, if you build with gold, silver, jewels, all that stuff is going to last because it's going to be tested by fire. If you build with wood, hay, stubble, and straw, all that stuff is going to get burned up. And you yourself will be saved, right? Because we're secure in Christ. But your rewards will be jeopardized. All right? So the time is short to work with those materials that are going to gain us rewards. And guys, you want rewards in heaven. We're not working for salvation. We're not earning salvation. But we want rewards in heaven. We want to be able to show when Jesus comes back that we have earned his five minas back and made more or earned two. Whatever God has given us, we want to be faithful. We all want to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. And so the time is short, whatever that looks like, whether it's your time or somebody else's time. It's, it's short, and we need to get busy. So the Great Commission closes with a promise. It says, Jesus told his apostles that he would be with them until the end of the age. And guys, that promise applies to us as well. No matter what the culture looks like, no matter what the government does or doesn't do, no matter what the tech companies do or don't do, Jesus has promised that as we're making disciples, he will be with us until the end of the age. Whatever the future holds for the church, and again, I don't know, it doesn't matter so much because we can go forward joyfully, boldly, and unafraid because Jesus is going with us. You know, he gave this command to his apostles, and instead of saying, you know, go ahead, you guys go do it, and I'm going to go hang out in heaven, Jesus says, no, I'm going with you. I'm going to be with you. So as we're going out, let's go out. Let's get after it, knowing that Christ is with us, knowing that we win. In the end, whatever difficulties we face to get there, we win in the end. And let's, like Spurgeon, let's take as many people as we can with us. If they're going to go to hell, that's not we can control, but let them do it over our bodies with our arms wrapped around their knees. And secure in the fact that Jesus is with us through every trial, every difficulty. So I'm going to ask the worship team to come up. And as they do, would you stand up? And we're going to read from Colossians 1, 9 through 14. So let's read. We have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will in all spiritual wisdom and understanding 
so as to walk in a manner very good work and increasing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might for all endurance and patience with joy, giving thanks to the Father who has qualified you to share in the inheritance of the saints in life. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and has transferred us to the kingdom 